Good morning. Welcome everyone to worship here at Springfield Church of the Brethren. It is June 19th. I know not all of you were here last week, and so I, I will explain if you're looking at our bulletin and think it's kind of odd, they don't have any scripture listed. It's because we're doing something a little different for four weeks. For scripture is meant to be read aloud. Every book was meant to be read from beginning to end in one go. Although I will not ask you all to stand here because if I were to read the entire book of Romans from beginning to end, that itself would take a good two hours. So we have broken it up and this is part two, chapters one through four of the letter to Romans. As a quick recap and a reminder of uh, what we read last week in chapters 1 through 4, Paul wrote this letter with the intentions of visiting the Romans in the near future. He also wanted to address some of the problems that were happening within the church of Rome. Like pretty much every other church he started, there was a bit of a problem. There were those believers who thought that Christians should follow the Jewish Torah, to follow all the ancient law, and there were those who didn't. Rome had a unique issue, though. There had been a span of time after the church had already taken a hold in Rome in which the Jews had been expelled from the city. Now the Jews have been allowed back. And the believer Jews were unhappy at how Gentile the believer Romans had made the church. Last week, Paul made the argument that all of humanity has been given a law that should lead them to righteousness. The Jews had the given law and the Gentiles the natural law, which is the intrinsic righteousness which is sewn into the very fabric of the world and the human heart. However, humanity was and is unable to follow the laws. And it is through the faith in and of Jesus that humanity is redeemed. Today, Paul will continue this argument, adding on uh, thoughts about baptism and humanity and the importance of the given law. Last week, we encountered a couple concepts that I prefaced the sermon with. Talking about honor and shame, these were extremely important in ancient societies, including Roman and Jewish. Honor and shame is never about how we feel about ourselves. It is about how we are viewed by our community in this, in this way. Today, we're going to add on some new terms that are going to be used frequently, faith and death. Faith, of course, is a word we in the church use a lot. And we use it to mean complete trust and conviction in God. It's a noun. It's something we obtain and hold close. But that's not exactly how Paul uses it. It's a little more complex. He uses it in what we call the genitive form, or it's a kind of possessive form. For instance, 322 reads... Typically, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to who all believe. But it could also just as easily be translated, this righteousness is given through the faith of Jesus Christ 
to all who believe. Paul could have chosen to make this clear, but he did not. He wanted us to understand that faith is not merely a noun. It is something that we don't only have, but something we actively use. For that reason, I'll be referring to faith not as simply faith, but living faith. Because Paul constantly reminds us throughout the letters by his use of Greek that, um, that faith is active and not something you simply hold on. The other term is death. Paul is going to move through three different terms or three different ways of talking about death and he's going to move through them pretty seamlessly so I know it will cause a little confusion. First off, Paul is not Jesus. At times he speaks with authority from God. At other times he tells us, this is how I believe things, but not necessarily how I, under, how I, not necessarily how God has directed things. And so sometimes Paul doesn't perfectly agree with how we read Jesus. And one of those things is afterlife. Because Paul will talk about the body of the, the death the bodily death. For him, he believes that since the time of Jesus, any person who dies in body and does not believe in Jesus will experience a spiritual death that follows it. This is annihilation. This does not mean he does not believe in a hell. He does not believe in a punishment afterlife. Paul believes that if you do not believe in Jesus and you die, you simply cease to exist. For believers, they too will experience a bodily death. But for them, the bodily death is followed by a spiritual sleep, which happens until the end times come, when the body will be resurrected in a new way, and the spirits will reawaken within them. According to 1 Corinthians, which we read last year, what this body looks like is completely incomprehensible to us today. There's one other kind of death he will talk about, and that is metaphorical. As we kind of covered in our call to worship, uh, he believes that through the act of baptism, we, we uh, reenact and join Jesus in the death at, on the cross and burial in the tomb. And we are risen again through the Holy Spirit. So once again, three deaths, a bodily, a spiritual, and a metaphorical. I hope this might clear up any confusion when we come to the sermon in a little while, but uh, I invite you to continue listening as Paul weaves together one of the most beautiful and complex theological statements in the entire Bible, one that reminds us that things are so much bigger and more beautiful than we can ever imagine. And sometimes we humans just like to get caught up in the minutia and not look up and see what's really going on. Romans chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8. Brothers and sisters, since we are made righteous through living faith, let us have peace with and in God. Let us set aside all things that cause division, for we are one in Jesus, who, in whose living hope we all stand. Boast 
But do not boast of your salvation. Do not boast of your faithfulness. Boast of hope. The hope of the eschaton. The last days when God will make all things right. I know this is not easy. That living faith in this world can often attract suffering. But you can choose. You can choose to make these negatives into positives. Learn from them. Cultivate traits that bring honor, like perseverance, character, and hope. As I said before, there is no shame in God, and there is no shame in the way of God. Your suffering is not a source of shame, but of honor. And you do not suffer alone. For God's power, God's strength, God's love is within you through the Holy Spirit that resides within our hearts. Some people will gladly die for an honorable person, that is, someone who is upright, a leader who is loved, who is respected. A few less would die for a righteous person, someone who follows the given or the natural law. But Christ died for all, good and bad, believers and skeptics, Jesus went to the cross for those who did not know him and those who continue to live lives separated from God. For sin has long been in this world, creating this deep chasm, this chasm that keeps us from God even in death, that separates creator from created, making death eternal instead of life. In the way back, it was different. The rules had not yet been spelled out, and those who broke the given law were not held responsible for their sins since they were unaware, at least in the same way. Still, in those days, death and sin reigned, and all were caught in it. From the very beginning, from Adam, he was the first, beginning the trend of all humanity, the trend of rebellion. We all rebel against God, against the natural order, against the natural law. This sin is communal and individual. We are each responsible for it, and together we are responsible for it. But we do not need to stay a part of this old humanity. We are invited into a new one, one that has been justified and made right with God. Humanity was led into sin and rebellion by one man, and it has been led out by one man's perfect obedience, Jesus. From his actions, people beyond count receive grace of surpassing measure. The given law could not do this. It could not bridge this chasm between sin and God, but it was never designed to. It showed us our limitations so that we could understand the grace that we are now being offered. That grace, this abounds more freely in this world than the sin. Now don't misunderstand me. I am still not making the argument that we should sin more so that grace abounds more. For I am dead to sin. You are all dead to sin. 
For that is what baptism is. When you entered the water, you entered the grave and joined Jesus in death. And just as Jesus was raised from the grave, so were we. We were raised into the new humanity, dead in the old, alive in the new. Our old ways, our sins, our old lives have been done away with. We are no longer slaves to the sinful ways of this world. Yeah, sure, sin is still there. It is ever trying to bring you back into its fold. Fight it! Walk away from it and do not let yourself be its tool. You are God's. You once gave yourself over willingly to sin. You worked its work. You sowed its seeds. You caused it to grow. It was compulsive. You were sin's slave. Looking back in this life, you can see what grew in that life, and you are ashamed. Now give yourself over to righteousness. Give yourself over to it in greater devotion to the living faith. Make it your center. Make it your purpose. Surpassing your former servitude to sin for the fruits of your labors in living faith is life eternal in Jesus. But wait, one of you might be asking, what about the given law still? You haven't quite answered this. Should we or shouldn't we follow it? Okay, think of it like marriage. While both partners are alive, they keep their relations within the marriage. If one is to step out, we call that adultery. It is sinful. But if one of them was to pass, the other one is free to choose to marry or to not marry, and neither are considered sinful. So it is that when you have died and risen with Christ, you can follow the giving code, and Christ, if you wish, that's great. Or you can follow Christ alone. You have been freed to do either. You have been freed to serve the Spirit in new ways that the given law could never have accomplished. Does this mean that the given law is sinful then? Yeah, Sinful, certainly not. It was a God-given gift. How could a God-given gift be sinful? The sinfulness is in us. The law defines sin. It does not propagate it. Consider the commandment, you shall not covet. You know, covet, uh, consumed with desire. This is the source of so many sins in our world. It is the source of the sin that led Adam and Eve to disobey. It is the source of the sin that causes so much infidelity and violence in this world. Those who follow the given law know that to covet is to bad. And they know that better than those who were never given the given law. The given law clearly defines righteous life from sinful life. And yet our ancestors, the ancient Israelites, still engaged in covetous behavior. The given law did not end the sinning. It just directed us away from the sin. But we still took part in it. 
that sin, whose root is deep in our nature, seized upon that given law and used it to take us ever deeper into sin death. The given law is righteous, but we allowed it to become a tool of sin. You may ask then, would it maybe then have been better for us never to be given the given law? I mean, wouldn't it have been better if we just remained in sinful ignorance instead of deep sinful awareness? Okay, that's fair. It's understandable. But listen, it's still better that we receive the given law. It is a gift from the Holy Spirit. It has spiritual nature. We humans are naturally of this world. We are mundane. We are fleshy. Thus, we are slaves to sin. My mind and my heart desire to do what is good, and yet I do not do what is good. Why? Because I'm fleshy. And my fleshy nature draws me towards sin. It makes me do sinful things. But my mind and my soul delight in that given law, for it lays out the kind of life I wish to live. It pushes me. But the sin law that inhabits this flesh pulls me back in from the desires of my heart. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, it is a paradox. The given law shows God's plan for us to live the good life. But we, but because of our rebellion, the given law has condemned us. It's become a cycle. Sin and correction. Sin and correction. Beginning with Adam and that first sin against the first commandment. And it has only built upon itself ever more, ever more. And that was because of our nature, not the given law's. But now, the given law has, like a magnifying glass or a microscope, has zeroed in to show how humanity cannot live up to God's expectations. Israel was God's chosen people, given the blessed given law. This showed that we of flesh alone, even the specially gifted, cannot please God. For those of flesh concentrate on fleshly coveting. We are governed by death. We are hostile to God in the ways of God. Those of flesh cannot be made happy by God and cannot make God happy. But things are different now. For while the given law was unable to rectify the sinful flesh, the sinless flesh of Christ, given as a sinful offering, has opened a new path in which flesh is ruled by spirit. Those of spirit concentrate on the desires of the spirit. They are governed by peace and life. They walk in God's ways, rejoicing and praising the Holy One. They are happy in God, and they are the ones who make God smile. You... You are all now spirits, beings of spirits. You and the spirit of God lives in you. The spirit that comes from death and resurrection of Christ has spread out over this earth 
for all peoples of all colors and cultures to accept. Though we still inhabit these fleshy bodies, flesh that is ruled by sin and subject to death, we are also inhabited by the Holy Spirit of Jesus that rises out of death and gives the, gives the mortal body immortality. Do not give in to the desires of the flesh. Live above them. Live according to the Spirit. The Spirit has given you the power to do so. Where the given law lacked the force, the Spirit welcomes you into kinship. You are the children of the Spirit of God. Not slaves as you once were to sin, we, are, we get to call God Dad. And the Holy Spirit testifies that we are the children of God. We share in Jesus. He as his brothers and sisters suffering together, falling into death together, and rising into glory together. I know. I know that right now glory and redemption can seem far off. But I promise to you, that the present suffering is incomparable to the coming glory. The suffering will evaporate like shadow in bright light, like smoke on, on the wind. The, um, and all of creation will come about. For all of creation has suffered. It decays in the slavery of sinfulness. It longs for redemption. It groans and rumbles as if in the pains of childbirth. Redemption is so close. But first we must pass through this bottleneck. We, the first fruits of the spirit-filled life, cry for redemption to come fully into relationship with God as full sons and daughters. We hope, though, we cannot see, we hope, though, we cannot see the goal, for that is hope. Hope is not in that which you see, but that which you can't. And so we wait. We wait for the glory that comes. The Spirit bolsters us in this wait. It strengthens us in the bottleneck and intercedes for us. God knew this would happen ever since the beginning. God saw the human heart and knew that Jesus would have to come. God long ago prepared this path to glory for all peoples and has now opened it for us to follow. God walks with us. The God who is willing to suffer upon the cross. What should we fear then? Nothing. For nothing can separate us from God and the love. No hardship is too great, no suffering too painful, no flesh too mighty. Sin and annihilation have been conquered through Jesus. But we are more than conquerors, we are God's children. For I am convinced that neither death nor light, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you. I, I apologize for anyone who's popping in and out of this. I know it doesn't feel quite as together, though I, I will recommend we put these up every week. You can catch last week's if you like, and this week's will make more sense. But I love the ending of chapter 8. 
all this talk of separation, of that which with lies within us, our, our own humanity at times, keeping us from just doing right. And then being reminded that when, when we come to Christ, when we meet Christ and we try, and for I am convinced neither death nor light, angels nor demons, present or future, powers, height or depth, or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. A reminder that as long as we're trying, as long as we're doing our best, there's always grace, there's always forgiveness, there are always open arms of the Father just waiting to hold us close. I love that thought here on Father's Day. And whenever I think of fathers in, in the story of, of the Bible, I often think of the, the story of the prodigal son. For we are all prodigal children at one time or another. But when we realize and we go back, we aren't met with a father who's like, well, you're the one who left. We're met with a dad who throws his arms open and invites us in and throws a party for us. Go out this day remembering that nothing can separate you from the God and God's love. Amen.